0: by producing truly independent news, analysis, cultural and public affairs programming. You are essential in keeping that information flowing and KPFA on the air. Invest today. Become a member or an ally as a monthly sustainer. Online today at kpfa.org. And we promise to stay as vigilant as always. It's profoundly reassuring to see Richard Dawkins step forth with a new book, Science in the Soul, Selected Writings of a Passionate Rationalist. He will appear with KPFA host Philip Maldary on Wednesday, August 9th at 7.30 p.m. at First Congregational Church of Berkeley and on Dana near Durant. There's wheelchair access. Tickets for this KPFA benefit are available at the best bookstores as well as brownpapertickets.com. you are listening to 94.1 KPFA and 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, 97.5 K248BR in Santa Cruz and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings. This is Jennifer Stone with a reading from my memoir, Telegraph Avenue, then first published, oh, long ago in 1977, uh, reprinted in 1992. Now, I do want to read a bit of the introduction because uh, I try to explain the uses of a journal you know, the way journals uh, coalesce or synthesize over time. Then I'll read excerpts dating from 1966 to 1977. I have manuscripts dated from 1977 to 1988, as well as 1988 through 1999. <laughs> but neither of those collections have soaked long enough to be more than just a collage or a mosaic. So let's start with the introduction and then begin in 1966. This book is dedicated to To my father, in memory of my father, born 1902, died in 1961. Someone once wrote, Only the dead tell the truth, and then not for some years. (laughs) So, too, the journal, Record of the Past, tells the truth if you let it soak long enough. Over time, the flesh. Falls from the bones, we get to the marrow of things. Our myths marinate, and the symbols come to the surface. What happened is only history. What matters is mythos. Most journal writing appears elliptical. Thoughts skip like stones across the surface of a life. Like a seascape seen from a moving train, the beauty is glimpsed rather than known. The trivial and the profound get equal time. The sincerity of the moment dies quickly in a journal. That first rush or gush of feeling loses its suds. Honesty comes only with a slow synthesis. The pieces collected here have been synthesized from originals, which were often too diffuse, too muddy for publication. But as Gertrude Stein said, mud settles. I have tried to take mud and make adobe bricks, enough bricks to build a small house for a kind of female oversoul. Synthesis-like style has something to do with sedimentation, the settling of the sands of thought and the leaves of emotion into a compost heap of prose from which a poem may grow or a story ferment. For some of us, the compost heap itself is worthy of study. Even blue mold is a map of dream. That's a Japanese poet whose name I have forgotten. In the conventional novel, there is exposition and a narrative leading to insight, or what we used to call the aha moment. In school, we spoke of this as the vines, the narrative, and the grapes. Aha! I just wanted to crush the grapes and make wine. Writing as I experience it means wringing out the heart mind until it stops lying. In a journal, it is possible to gnaw on the existential bone all day and then use that bone to make stone soup for supper. Poems begin in the journal. They often abort there. Trauma reflected upon in tranquility can produce morally stunning insights. Literary light, (laughs) it can also produce maudlin rubbish. When I first began to rework the raw material in my journals, it was all I could do to separate the garbage from the trash... But I always return to the style of the journal, the notebook, because the other forms bore me. Anaïs Nin, in the novel of the future, wrote The way to recognize a dead word is that it exudes boredom. <laughs> Gertrude Stein, America's quintessential language poet, wrote, quote, If you are a thinker, you will change the language. You will not use words the way others do. <laughs> ah, the way others do is still pretty much the same today. Prose is prosaic and poetry is exclusionary. In recent years, there has been some hope that women might change the language. Virginia Woolf wrote that all the older forms had become hardened by the time the woman writer took up the pen. But the novel, she thought, might still be soft in woman's hands. Woolf suggested that the woman writer might knock it into new shapes and use it as an outlet for the poetry in her. For it is the poetry, wrote Virginia, which is still denied an outlet. She wrote of the tyranny of the literary establishment. Quote, if a writer were a free man and not a slave, if he could base his work upon his own feeling and not upon convention, there would be no plot, no comedy, no tragedy, no love interest or catastrophe in the accepted style. And perhaps not a single button sewn on as the Bond Street tailors would have it. <laughs> End Quote, Women, too, are slaves, not free men. Wolf wrote in 1928, quote, I thought of all the women's novels that lie scattered like small pockmarked apples in an orchard about the second-hand bookshops of London. It was the flaw in the center of ...that had rotted them. She, the woman writer, had altered her values in deference to the opinion of others. Expanding on this theory, which is set forth in her essay, A Room of One's Own, Wolf wrote that women are forbidden to write about the life of the body... They were, they are, inhibited by patriarchal taboo. Today, when bright-eyed young women tell me that this is no longer the case, I show them my files, the ones labeled blood taboo, together with the terse responses from editors who bothered to read my works on female... Biological experience. Publication is out of the question. When it comes to a woman's physical life, only the transmuted and abstracted material ever sees print. Oh, of course. Uh, poems are in great demand. It's the maternal material that is anathema ...to the male stream. (laughs) An editor... uh, ...just cut that sentence... (laughs) ...into oblivion. Writing about babies or gynecology... ...or even about real female sexual needs... ...is just about as popular... ...with these editors and publishers as writing about skin disease. Content is censored just as much today as in centuries past. Form is also severely censored. Writers who go outside the lines when they draw pictures of the world are seldom rewarded for their efforts. Now, this is curious because nearly every other 20th-century art form has cut loose from the past. Today, painting is about paint. Music is about sound. But words still cling to something very old. Like religiosity, language has its seat in the old brain... In the reptilian brain stem of early man. Chants are as old as the dance. In the beginning was the word, and the word was sacred. Sacred text became story. And we are our stories. We will never be without our stories, those fables and tales legends and myths that surround us and comfort us with symbols and songs. As Joseph Campbell told us, ritual is enacted myth. Our rites change as the myths do. (laughs) Witness the rock concert, an ancient rite made anew. What modern writers need to find is the structure that supports words today. New age stories may not need endings or beginnings or even middles. Gertrude Stein wrote, Stories have gone just as representative painting has gone. Perhaps representative painting has gone because we have photography. Perhaps stories have gone because social structure, as we have conceived it, is going. Many of the stories of Western civilization have been internalized in our culture. The post-literate generation can watch a ten-minute video about the end of the world by ice or fire. And no one needs to refer them to revelation. (laughs) Although that might be nice. The young do not need to be told about original sin or the legend of the fall. They've heard it all somewhere. These myths stain the culture. It's my own hope that we are a bit sick of the old mythos that we're overdue for a paradigm shift away from Judgment Day, from dread and damnation as social control, and toward a new pagan pragmatism, a genuine nature religion and Green Party politics. If this is the direction of the next millennium, literature will get a break. We'll be able to let go of linear time, that sense of time that leads to death. Poets know these lines are only circles, after all. And no matter where we go in time, we must uh, always meet ourselves coming back. So, too, in the present work, I find the person who wrote these pages is no longer with me. But she meets me coming back through the existential steps toward consciousness. She is still asking questions. The answers are forgotten now. Many of the individual pieces included in this book, have been published over the years in different magazines under the working title Loose Leaves from the Little Black Book. I hope that placing them all together between two covers will make a kind of marriage consummation. That's what I wanted. I read over them now and they seem to have the aura of an old photo album in which what is left, what is left out, speaks loudest. Anais Nin once wrote, Trust the Fragments. With my own students over the years, the phrase I used was, Trust the Dust. Dust is never deliberate like the past. It just accumulates and becomes the ever-expanding present. In the journal, I can savor the moment and then let it go. Eternity happens when we can awaken into the present moment. The moment which includes all. All that has been. And then the moving fingers, piety, and wit move on. <laughs> that intro was written in the fall of 1989. This is Jennifer Stone's Telegraph Avenue, then excerpts beginning in 1966. I like those wonderful little epigraphs. Uh, I put one alone on the fly leaf here on the page. It's from Oscar Wilde's poem, The Harlot's House. We watched the ghostly dancers spin to sound of horn and violin like black leaves Wheeling in the Wind Autumn 1966, Lafayette, California Last year's Christmas tree lights Are still strung out on the mantelpiece One by one they burn out It's August, September There are still tree lights burning Early December 1966, I get a divorce I'd rather be lonely alone. My next-door neighbor buys my house. She wants to fix it up, she says. Rent it for income, she says. The driveway is buried in leaves. The trees and vines have grown over the long wooden porches and across the roof until the window grew dark in my bedroom. So now I will cut my way out of my cul-de-sac. I will leave the woods, which are my backyard. The graves of dead pets will be deserted. Now the neighbor comes with buckets of white paint. One color, she says. White or beige, she says. Then uh, use accessories for accent. White paint across the wooden beams of the ceilings, over the bricks of the fireplace. There's no stopping her. By the window in my bedroom, there is a vine creeping up the wall. Once the roses grew into the room falling through the window, she paints over the vine. In her haste, then stops to scrape it loose and cut it down. As I trek back and forth, packing the trunk of my car, I hear her muttering to herself, God, you'd think nobody'd lived here. December 1966. Buy Indian tea, lemon, shampoo, cinnamon candles, and a bottle of Irish mist. Go to a coffee house in Berkeley. Pick up a man. Bring him home to desecrate my marriage bed. Afterwards, we shower. He looks clinically at my stomach scar and small breasts. I forget about the rites of passage, the desecration ritual I planned. I reach out for affection, bury my face in his shoulder, and ask forgiveness. (laughs) I guess we have not seen the same movies. I expect the same response I got ten years ago. He's about my... Age, but he is still a young man. Strange. I dress and light the cinnamon candles. I throw pillows on the floor, logs on the fire, pour the Irish mist, music, and incense. Ah, dutiful domestic. My son falls out of his crib, soaking wet, dreaming of spiders again. I give him half a tablet of Valium and stuff him back in bed before he can make a scene. I shut the bedroom door tight. Returning to the fireside, I discover the man has been impressed with me after all. Is drinking my liquor. Looking around, he grins. <laughs> You're ready for more, aren't you? January 1967. Wipe the peanut butter off the table, clear a space for myself, ache with guilt. Take both sons to the child care center and wait while Simon sits outside the gate. To get ready, he says.